A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. And welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you for being here as always. Really appreciate it. This is episode 600. 600. Wow. There you go. It's a nice round number. If you've been here since the very first one way back in October 2006, actually, it must be quite close to the to the anniversary of the first ever Arscast. When was that? Let me just check the archives here. Okay. October 20th. 2006 was the very first one. Anyway, so if you've been here since then, well, God bless your commitment. Thank you so much. I think you deserve some kind of a prize. If this is your very first Arscast, welcome along. Glad to have you on board. Quite the show we have for you as well today. We're going to talk about Arsenal stuff, of course, as we always do. There's plenty going on. Um, what with the Europa League squad being released and the absence of Mesut Ozil and Socrates from that. So we're going to talk about that, but then we can reflect on a, a transfer window and the arrival of a, a big, big signing from Atletico Madrid, which we should all be happy about. I know it was kind of uh, sidelined a little bit by some of the other stuff that went on, but we signed a really good player on transfer deadline day, Thomas Partey. Not only will he bring something to us on the pitch, but maybe something off the pitch. Not far off the pitch, though, in the stands. As and when, of course, when fans are allowed back in stadiums. Fingers crossed that will be soon. That would be an amazing thing, an amazing step forward for all kinds of reasons. Because, you know, we have a bit of a unique opportunity here. I don't think there's another football club in the world which has a chant for a player based on a song sung by Eddie Murphy and written by Rick James. Tell me which other football club has that. We could have that. 
Listen. So hopefully we will be partying all the time this season. There are so many songs we could have used there. You pick your own. If, if that one doesn't tickle your fancy, there are about 7 billion songs with the word party in the title, and you can have your very own. You can sing away to your heart's content. But there you go. Look, a big signing, a very significant signing too, because we saw KSE do, we don't quite know exactly what, but something to make this transfer happen which isn't and hasn't been the way that they've operated in the past. So we're going to talk about that now in a few minutes' time with our first guest. But make sure you stay tuned to this Bat Channel, because a bit later on, I will be talking to Nicholas Bentner. That's right. Former Arsenal striker Nicholas Bentner. He's got a brand new book out. Well, it's brand new in English. It's been out in Danish. So I'll be talking to Nicholas, as well as the man who wrote the book with him, a man called Rune Skyam Nielsen. So we're going to chat about the book, about Arsenal, about his time at Arsenal, his career, the ups and downs, and lots more besides. So hang tight for that conversation coming up a bit later on. Now, though, to get into all the bits and pieces that have been going on this week, and a lot of what's happened has been dominated by the news that Mesut Ozil and Socrates have been left out of our Europa League squad because we couldn't name uh, more than 17 non-homegrown or locally trained players. And it looks as if potentially those two guys could be left out of our Premier League squad as well, which is quite the thing when you consider their experience, their wage packets and, and everything else. So with me to discuss that and more, I'm delighted to welcome to the show the brand new Chief Arsenal Reporter for London. It's Chris Wheatley. First of all, Chris, congratulations on that. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm delighted to actually be on the Askcast for the first time. I've been a listener from a young age as well. Uh, and yeah, absolutely delighted as well to announce that I'm going to be back in the press box covering Arsenal week in, week out. Interesting times as well to be uh, to be covering the club. There's a lot going on. But where I want to start this morning is uh, news that broke officially, well, broke officially, I guess. Arsenal submitted their squad for the Europa League. There were two very notable absences. Well, there were a couple of other absences we might talk about in, in a moment. But Mesut Ozil and Socrates both left out of the squad because there's a restriction on the number of uh, non-homegrown players or locally trained players that we could use. Uh, are you, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, are you in any way surprised by that decision, the decision that Mikel Arteta has made when he's submitted his squad? No, not, not at all. I mean, I think lots of Arsenal fans were speculating who was going to be uh, excluded from the squad and I think uh, Ozil and, and Socrates were probably the first names on, on everyone's lips and yeah I mean it's not a surprise but I think with Meza Ozil he's kind of announced that it's, uh, he's been in a battle with the club for the past season or so past year and I think uh, he's announced with that Gunnosaurus post that his, uh, it's the start of the war um, until at least his contract expires um, for Socrates I think there was a lot of speculation on deadline day. There was a lot of interest as well. And people have been saying that, you know, Socrates isn't good enough for Arsenal. I've seen a lot of criticism from him on social media. And uh, uh, what I would say is that there was a lot of interest on deadline day um, from clubs across Europe, some huge names, big European teams. I think that does show that he's in demand. 
there was a, a move for Fulham. Uh, Fulham wanted to sign Socrates, but he uh, obviously decided not to take up the opportunity. I think if uh, Socrates went to Fulham, he probably would have been uh, exposed and, and completely criticised, you know, because of their defensive record this season. But yeah, not surprised at all. Um, I think a lot of the fans are going to be disappointed. I've seen so many fans kind of question, you know, why isn't Ozil in the team? You know, there's a creative link missing and it's not a surprise, but I think, you know, it's going to be a, a long battle uh, where, mm. where Mezzet's concerned. So, look, Socrates, I think maybe we can leave to one side and I, I think you're very generous suggesting that moving to Fulham was an opportunity. I'm not sure that's something that any defender right now would be relishing one way or the other, even if they, they want to play football. Maybe the scope, you know, in the next little while to come to an agreement over his contract as they have done or other clubs have done in, in recent days. You think of Welbeck, you think of Jack Wilshire with Arsenal Connections, whose contracts at their clubs have been terminated, which allows them, you know, to move on. So maybe, maybe that's something that can happen. But obviously the fact that Mesut Ozil has not been included in the match day squad at all this season, not even for the Carabao Cup games, means that the exclusion from the Europa League squad is not a surprise. It can't be a surprise to anybody, whether you're a fan of Mesut Ozil or you're not a fan of Mesut Ozil. Just what's been happening tells you that there's, you know, there was going to be an issue there. Given his stature, though, and given his profile and given his following and given his wage packet and everything else, it can't not be a story. It just can't. You know, you can't just say, well, he's not being used. He's out of the squad. Let's move on. It is one of those things which merits discussion. So how are we viewing the situation overall now? He has 10 months, nine months left on his contract He's not going to be in the Europa League squad. Chances are he's not going to be in the Premier League squad unless there is some room made in there for him. But again, it seems very, very unlikely. How do we view what's going to happen? What is the healthiest situation now for player and club? I mean, the healthiest situation would have been for for Meza Ozil to find a way out this summer. Well, obviously, he has that huge contract, which everyone talks about. There were very few offers. I think Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, those kind of teams were interested. But I mean, it was never realistic that Ozil was going to go to those kind of countries. I think you have to look at the way he's been managed. Um, he has a, a very obviously intelligent representative who essentially manages his PR with a, a social media agency in Germany. And they uh, are essentially you know, putting out all of this stuff um, which is, like I say, uh, almost a declaration of war against the club. Uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration because, like you say, Mesut is or was the most followed player on social media in the Premier League. Um, he has a huge, huge fan base, global fan base, probably stemming from his time at Real Madrid. Mm. Um, and so much has happened, but mostly off-the-pitch stuff in the past couple of seasons, mostly political uh, political how can I say, political issues which he's kind of aired or raised on social media. He's used his platform to do that. People have said that maybe that's linked in with why he's being dropped. I, I Honestly, I don't believe it's got anything to do with, with politics. I think it's quite simply that Arteta knows the player from when they, they played together. He knows the player's character, how he performs in training. We know him as, as always isn't the, the best trainer, but he can perform on, on match days. Um and 
it's a difficult one. I, I feel I, I feel like Meza Ozil uh, is almost creating like this situation is creating a division between the fans. Um, you know, every time he posts or every time a, a team lineup is posted, the fans are questioning. You know, why is he not being involved? And Arteta is getting angry or is getting annoyed, irritated at the questions. But like you say, he's got to expect these questions because. Arsenal fans haven't been given the answers. Mm. And, uh, I, I feel like it's been it's been going on for so long now. I think a lot of people, are just, especially at the club, just want the situation to be over and, and, and done with. Yeah, I mean, it's. I suppose it's something this morning, the, the tweet that he put out or his social media team put out this morning, almost immediately after the, the squad list were released on UEFA, was to say thank you for 25 million followers on Twitter. Which, you know, um, is an amazing thing to have if, you know, you're a sports person and you're a brand and, and everything else. But it's sort of at odds with the reaction that you might expect from a footballer who has basically been told that he is not going to play. Is there the sense of disappointment? Is there the sense of hurt? Is there the sense of, I'm going to prove you wrong from a tweet like that? And people can read into this sort of thing the, the way that they want to. So when I think about this, I think about Mikel Arteta and his desire, his his need, you know, given the role that he's in, to win football matches. And would he allow himself to be dictated to on a sporting level from people higher up? I, I just can't quite get my head around that. I just I just think that if Mikel Arteta really wanted Mesut Ozil in his team, he would pick him. That brings us to the pay cut situation and whether or not that's having an influence on his exclusion from the team. Mesut Ozil was one of three players who didn't take the pay cut that was pushed through by the club. And his position on that was made public when there were other players um, who didn't take the pay cut who who weren't made public. And I don't think that's right. Um, I don't think it's fair. But like you say, you've mentioned the word war. There does seem to be a, a, a sort of a, a state of conflict between Mesut Ozil and the club. But how do you view people who would, or how would you view the idea that his absence from the squad is entirely down to him not taking the pay cut? No, I, I don't think it's got anything to do with the pay cut, to be honest. And like you say, it is a bit unfair that, that Ozil's been sing, singled out. Uh, you know, obviously he's the highest paid player at Arsenal, but there are other players who are very close to, to Ozil who also refused the pay cut. Um, obviously we can't name them, but the fact that other players close to him in his kind of circle uh, refused the pay cut too, I, I would say that it's unfair to even kind of mention it because uh, quite simply, Ozil didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, he took a an informed decision or his representatives took an informed decision to obviously reject that pay cut. And you could argue after the, the 55 redundancies were made, it was the correct decision. And now he's obviously done this uh, Gunnosaurus or he's decided to reimburse Gunnosaurus for the remainder of the season. Yes, it's a PR move. It's, there's no doubt about that. It's a, it's a very obvious PR move um, from him, from his representatives. But, it's it's a good move and it works. It, his post on Instagram has over one million likes. Um, it made global news. I was talking to people in Greece and Canada. They all heard about this story. Mm. Uh, it was a global story. Mm. So from that aspect, Mesut Ozil is a complete king. He, he knows how to how to to run his how to manage his reputation. Um, 
at least in terms of in terms of Arsenal fans, like from what I can see, that Arsenal fans are still clamouring for him to get back into the team. But I think the the, the people who are informed know what Özil did before lockdown. He was okay. He, you know, he did he did well. Um, but Arteta post lockdown changed the system. We know that Özil doesn't uh, particularly flourish. He doesn't contribute. Um, He's the weak point of Arsenal's press. I mean, let's let's not get around it. Like we we all know that. Mm. Uh, I think that's probably the main reason why he's not involved. Um, but he has a huge influence at Arsenal on on the training pitch. Um, he's still respected by a lot of the play or all of the players. Um, and obviously, we we're not going to focus too much on Socrates. It's not like a hot topic. But I would say the same for Socrates. He's you know extremely respected. Um, and I think there's a disappointment or a sense of disappointment from some of these players, maybe three or four players at Arsenal, who feel that they haven't been respected, who feel that there's a lack of respect from the club's hierarchy. They haven't been told why they haven't been selected in the squads. They haven't been informed why. Uh, and I think for, for players who have been there, someone like Meza, who's been there for, for a long time, one of the club's longest-serving players, I think he feels that he's probably owed a bit more respect. Um, and yeah, I think we know, or I, I know for sure that Edu has been calling up agents, uh, calling up the representatives of players and asking them about their situations, uh, almost trying to kind of push players out of the door. We know, we've seen that with Matteo Guendouzi. Uh, I think one thing's for sure, Arteta said that Guendouzi and Ozil at the start of the season they would be give, given second chances mm. you know everyone starts on a level, play, level playing field and you know that, that clearly was just uh, they were just words like he didn't mean that um, Guendouzi is gone Meza Ozil's not been named in the Europa squad or the Premier League squad which will be announced on the 20th of October and yeah I think it's disappointing from, from that sense that Arsenal maybe haven't treated those players with enough respect um, but on the other hand, you, you can say that you can't keep everyone happy in mm. uh, in a squad which is as bloated as Arsenal's. You know, with eight centre backs, it's uh, it's pretty difficult to keep every single player happy. And look, ju- just to sort of clarify, to go back on the, the pay cut thing, you know, players, the other players who refuse the pay cut have played, so it's not a question of if you refuse the pay cut, you you don't play. And I think you're right to say that you know, the club themselves have not covered themselves in glory here. You know, this isn't to be, uh, it wouldn't be right for it to be a, a one-sided uh, debate, a one-sided issue. You know, some of the the actions of the club have um, have not been perfect by a long way. You know, people have found it difficult to, to compartmentalise the 55 redundancies versus the clamour to invest huge money in the squad. That That's the cognitive dissonance which, which we need as football fans to be able to say, well, that's bad, but we we really want this too. You know, the Gunasaurus thing, uh, like what an assist. It was quite a tap-in for, for Mesut Ozil to, to just slot away the easiest goal he'll ever score in his life, you know, and that's down to the club managing things in a, in a, in a bad way. There's no two ways about that. But what is the way forward here? I know there's only a short amount of time relatively in, in contract terms, but there's a long season ahead. If Mesut Ozil is not going to be named in the Premier League squad, if he's not going to be named and hasn't been named in the Europa League squad, is it incumbent on all sides to come together and try and find 
some sort of solution which puts this thing to an end rather than have it play out all season long where there might be other own goals, other tap-ins for Mesut Ozil to take advantage of on on social media. They're going to have to pay him anyway. They're going to pay him every month between now and the end of June 2021. And if he's not going to be used, is it not important for Arsenal as a football club, as an institution, and also maybe for Mesut Ozil as a player and a person and a professional to sort of come to an agreement which says, this is a really sad way for all this to have ended because we all remember how exciting it was and how happy we were when he signed in 2013. It was like an amazing day, an amazing signing for the club. And nobody, I think, expected for it to end in this kind of ignominious way. But surely it's time for everyone to just like sit down, sort it out and go their separate ways if it's going to be a case that he just is not going to play between now and the end of the season. You would think so. And let's be clear here, this is a a business decision and a a business thing as much as it is a a football topic because I think from Meza Ozil's point of view um, or from his camp's point of view, they probably don't see how he's going to play again for Arsenal. Mm. There's no sign that that is going to change. There's been no indication from Mikel Arteta that he's going to name him in the matchday squad. I think the fact that he's not been named in the Europa and most likely the Premier League squad just shows you that there's no real way back. And yeah, there should be, there should be in an ideal world, an agreement between both parties, a mutual understanding that, you know, this, this player has uh, a year left on his contract or less less than a year left. But I, I, don't, I just don't see a way back back for Mesut Ozil. I don't see how he's going to get back into the team. Um, I think Arsenal ideally would probably like to cancel his contract um, or, or find a way where they could do that. But it's not going to happen. His representative has said that he's going to see out his contract, contract at Arsenal. When I interviewed his agent, I think it was two years ago, he said the same thing to me then. Mesut Ozil was going to be an Arsenal player. Uh, until his contract expires. But he's not a player. He's not a player anymore. If he's not going to play, he is not a player. He's somebody who's going to sit on the sidelines and potentially, you know, again, this this isn't to um, come down on one side or the other, but it feels like a situation that could grow even more toxic. And if you're a fan of Arsenal Football Club, you don't want something like that hanging over you. Um, You're hanging over your club for the season, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it, it's a horrible situation. It's a really toxic situation and everyone is looking at it. Everyone in, in world football is looking at it because Meza Ozil a few seasons ago was, you know, arguably one of the best number 10s in, in world football. And what's happened as, like you say, he's not, a, he's not a player anymore, but he's contractually mm. obligated uh, to, to come to training every day for Arsenal. And, you know, he will do that. Um, it's such a difficult situation. I just, I don't see how, how there's going to be a, a way out of it um, until his contract expires. You know, he might play for the under 23s. He might uh, be involved in the Carabao Cup or FA Cup games. I don't see it. I don't, I don't see him being involved at all. Um, it would be nice to, for, for two, like you say, the two parties to have some kind of agreement, but no, I just don't see it happening. 
Okay, well, look, it is one of those things which feels like it could run and run throughout the season, and let's hope it's not too much of a distraction, um, and let's hope that it doesn't have, you know, I think for both parties it would be great if this could end amicably. I'm not sure that it is going to go that way, but we'll wait and see what happens. But I want to move on, Chris, a little bit and just ask you about the transfer window in general and your thoughts on how it finished um, from an Arsenal perspective Obviously, the late arrival of Thomas Partey is is a big boost to the team. But your thoughts on, uh, okay, first on Thomas Partey and what he might bring, and then just how you view the squad going into um, going into the rest of the season now. I think Thomas Partey is a fantastic signing. A lot's been written about him, um, and yeah, fantastic player, ball winner, can play in defensive midfield. He can attack. He's a great passer. I think. There's so many great analytical pieces out there which kind of put it in in better terms than I could. But yeah, he's a fantastic signing. Um, delighted to see Arsenal stump up the cash for him. You know, not many people were expecting that to happen. Obviously, Stan Kroenke has uh, pushed the boat out there. He's managed to dip into his pockets for the first time in you know, since he's been in charge, and Arsenal have managed to mm. to, to get that signing um, over the line. But I think. It's more than just a signing for Arsenal. It gives the fans some some hope. You know, the, the fans were clamouring for a, for a new signing, clamouring for even for Hussein Mawar or, or Partey, and they got one of the two players they wanted this summer. Um, I think it was obvious they tried to offload players first. Um, it didn't happen well, the way they wanted it to happen because obviously the, the current situation makes it very difficult for players to, to move. Mm. Um but it's a great signing for Arsenal. I think they've done some really, really good business this summer. Um, the the Willian signing was a bit strange in terms of the the length of his contract, mm. but I mean it's still a, a good signing. You know what he brings is a lot of experience, um, leadership, and I, I think that is a good signing too. Um, they're not forgetting as well. Arsenal signed I think seven or eight youth players, yeah, uh, which shows kind of how busy they've been on that front as well. The, you know, I think Arsenal's academy has maybe stagnated over the past couple of seasons. Uh, they have produced some decent players. Obviously, Bakayo Saka is the, the most notable player to come out of the, the academy. But I think by signing seven or eight uh, youth players, it's kind of a statement that Arsenal are trying to uh, bring life into the academy. And obviously, improvement was needed there. Um, but yeah, generally, I think the, the business that's been done by Arsenal this summer has been fantastic. And Obviously, they've got Gabriel Martinelli as well coming back in, in the new year. So, yeah. like, like a new signing. Like a new signing, of course. And just finally, I mean, how significant do you view the... Um, what's the word I'm going to use here? Uh, Amy Lawrence reported in The Athletic that the KSE had gone some way to funding the Thomas Partey transfer. We don't quite know the details of how that worked. Obviously, there was money in the um, debt reserve fund, which was freed up by the stadium restructuring, and there was money came in from Emmy Martinez. So we don't quite know if it was, um, you know, all the 50 million just sort of put on the table there by KSE. So uh, it is it is different, though, isn't it? It, it, it speaks to a, a trust in Mikel Arteta and a very public backing of the manager who, 
you know, he's he talks very well, Arteta, right? You listen to him in the press conferences, he talks well, he says the right things. But underneath it, there's this little undercurrent of like, he's just putting a bit of pressure on. You're going to back me. I need to be backed. We need to improve the squad. We've got to spend money. We run the risk of being left behind unless we spend money. Um, that message appears to have got through to KSE. So how significant do you think it is that, A, they, they reacted to that and what it might tell us about how they view Arteta uh, and and what he might be able to bring to the club? It's hugely, hugely significant. I, th- I think... Um Mikel Arteta, like you say, has said several times over the past few months that he has the backing of the Arsenal board. Uh, and I'd say what's different about Arteta as a, as a manager is that he has a direct relationship with Josh Kroenke. And that's something that Unai Emery didn't have. Mm. Um, and that was probably to his downfall. Um, the fact that Arteta has a, a direct line to, to Josh Kroenke makes him almost similar to Arsene Wenger in that sense from the kind of David Dean days. Obviously, they don't have that same kind of relationship. It's not like a almost a friendship where they're sure. having dinner at each other's houses. But the fact is, uh, Josh Kroenke is hugely influential now at Arsenal. Stan Kroenke is, you know, only in name is he kind of related to Arsenal. It's Josh Kroenke who is obviously at the forefront of uh, of everything now, um, and he he w- would have taken this decision um, alongside Arteta, but he would have been persuaded by. Edu, Vinay, and, and and Mikel. Obviously, those those three obviously would have persuaded him to to make a move for party on deadline day. And yeah, it's significant. And I think it shows that Arsenal do have ambition. You can't deny that this summer or the past couple of seasons since the Nicola Pepe signing, they've mm. shown huge ambition. They, they've paid a lot of money uh, for some big players uh, and they want to get back into the Champions League. And you, you have to say, you know, well done for that. Uh, it's a shame it's taken so long um, because the Cronkies have been billionaires since they've taken over Arsenal. They, the money's been there, you know, the whole time. Um, he hasn't put a penny into Arsenal for five years, but obviously something's changed. And uh, Mikel Arteta, I think, is definitely the right man to, to kind of lead Arsenal. Like you say, he knows how to speak to the press. He's really articulate. The players like him. Even Emmy Martinez, he. He left the club for Aston Villa, but I saw he was uh, bigging up Arteta in an interview with The Independent, You know, saying that yeah, he wouldn't have won those trophies if it wasn't for Arteta. Um, the same goes for Torreira, who obviously has been pushed out the door, but he's still very grateful for his, his time at Arsenal. Obviously, it's a lone move, but I can't see him coming back. Um, and yeah, I think that's a, a key sign that the majority of the players have the respect of the coach, of the manager. Mm. And the fact that his title changed as well um, recently was just another sign that he has the the full backing of the board. All right. Well, look, we will see what that uh, how that transpires throughout this season and what this squad is capable of doing, hopefully getting back into the Champions League. But we have a long way to go between uh, now and May before we can say that with any certainty. In the meantime, uh, best of luck again, Chris, with the new role at Football London. And thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you to Chris. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Chris Wheatley underscore. That is at Chris Wheatley underscore. And of course, you'll be able to find him very soon on football.london. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Okay, now on the Arscast, I'm delighted to welcome to the show two guests, one who you all know very well, former Arsenal striker Nicholas Bender, and with him, author Runa Shkayim Nielsen, who's worked with Nicholas on the brand new book, which is out now. Hello, guys. Hello, mate. Nicholas, you've got a book coming out this week. It's called Both Sides, which tells the story of your life and your career. Can I ask you first, what was the idea behind simply producing a book? Um, I've sort of not spoken out so much in the media over my uh, footballing career. And uh, at the time I was uh, looking to do the book, I was looking for an author that could write exactly the way I wanted. And um, I then uh, found Rone, obviously, uh, and, and he could understand what I, was, uh, what I wanted to do. And then I just felt it was, was the right time. Okay. Runa, what was what was it like working with Nicholas putting this together? Because footballers' stories can be quite a lot of them can be quite similar. This is not um like a normal footballer story, if you uh, will allow me to say that. It's quite extraordinary in places. So I mean, how is the process of working with Nicholas? He comes across as very honest in, in the book. I presume it was the same when you guys were talking about it. Yeah, well we've known each other for more than eight years now. And uh, the first time uh, I was to interview Nicholas back in 2012, uh, he was like the ordinary football portrait history. He was not saying very much. And uh, it was uh, it was like a, a, a closed affair somehow. But um, uh, we got to know each other through the years. And back in 2016, when Nicholas was like struggling a bit uh, in his life, uh, looking for a new, new place to play or... Uh, a relevance in, in playing at all 
And um, at that point, I, I got to know a whole different uh, person. And that person was a, a very honest person, but also a person that uh, uh, had some values I actually liked uh, very much. So we started to work closer and close together and uh, build up a confidence and confidentiality, you can say. Yeah. And uh, that meant that when Nicholas was finally ready to, to tell his side of the story, uh, that uh, the other side of the story has been a lot through media mm. during the years already. Uh, then uh, we had like a trust in each other that that meant that uh, he was very honest and sometimes had to correct me if I didn't have the whole and even more incredible story already, and that happened a lot. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I, sometimes I got a story that I almost didn't believe because it was so much more entertaining than uh, uh, I thought it would be, and uh, other other times, of course, it was also uh, educational because it shows something about uh, growing up in a, in a football industry, not just like a football club, mm-hmm. because uh, there's a lot of money at stake and a lot of uh, grown-up uh, um, interests that, uh, that is like pressured down in, in, in young uh, adults and, and boys. Nicholas, how important was it for you to work with somebody who you could trust? Because one of the things that comes across in the book over the period of your your career and your life is that there have been people who, you know, have been around you, friends and family who maybe haven't been quite on that wavelength with you. So when you're telling this story and when you're you're being as open and frank about as many things as you are, how important was it to have somebody like Runa who you knew when you tell him something, it is going to be you know, what it is on the on the page when the book is printed? I mean, that means everything to me. Um, if I didn't have that, I couldn't have done the book because uh, I didn't want the book to be done in any other way but with complete honesty. I didn't want it to be another footballing self-portrait where you just give the story of all the, the positives and the highlights and, and to be honest, it becomes quite boring. Mm. I wanted to tell the full story uh, and, and I wanted to be inspirational in a way and also something you could learn from. So I needed to do it with someone I had complete faith and trust in. And, uh, and that's why I could do it at that time with, uh, with Rona. Do you feel like you were able to find his voice in your writing, Runa? Because it comes across that way in the book. It does sound like Nicholas, but I know when you're writing, when you're a writer, you kind of have to put things down, perhaps in a different way, through the various conversations you guys must have had. Are you happy with the way that it turned out? We have, well, it's already out in Denmark. It's been out for like mm. 10 months now. been doing really, really good here, much even better than uh, even ourselves uh, had hoped for, I mm. think. And um, the, the thing that people say in Denmark is that they, they 100% believe that this is Nicholas' voice. Also, people that know him uh, well, well think so. And uh, I'm just happy to, to hear that it's, it also went across in, in, in the UK, uh, that the, the English tra- translation, is, uh, uh, translation sorry, is working. Uh, so uh, I, I think that I had to, of course, uh, listen a lot to Nicholas' voice before I started writing. Mm. Uh, in the first place, uh, I have... I have think I think I have two hundred hours of recordings through the years with us, or with you, with me, and, uh, putting questions uh, for you, and uh, so and I've heard those hundreds of hours a few times uh, until I really had Nicholas' uh, voice in my ear when I was writing. Mm. Yeah. Arsenal fans, Nicholas will know you as a guy who had 
plenty of self-confidence. I'm sure still has plenty of self-confidence in your uh, in your talent, in what you could do on the pitch. Clearly, there were some ups and downs along the way, and you go into those uh, various fluctuations in the book. But I want to start, if I can, by asking about Arsenal, about your time there, and about uh, what it meant for you as a, a young guy, a teenager coming from Denmark to North London. What did it mean to join a club like Arsenal? When you're young and your passion and dream is football, and you play in, in a small country like Denmark, are, and uh, Everyone is telling you you're great and you're good. You obviously start believing in it, mm. which I was no different. Uh, but I could also see, okay, I'm, I'm a lot better than people my age and uh, my development is going in, in, in the right direction. Then I said goodbye to my family at the airport, uh, which was uh, obviously with cheerful eyes and stuff like that uh, to, to come and, and join Arsenal. Obviously, that was, was massive. But what really was an eye-opener to me is to see that all of a sudden you are not the best anymore. Mm. Now you're part of 25 players who are all on the same level, who are all there for one reason and one reason only. And that was quite tough, I think, that you both left your place at home, but you also came to a place now where you had to fight for every single uh, session to try and be the guy that would break through to the first team. Mm. When you were breaking through, that there was a partnership, a strike partnership in the the reserves uh, at that time, yourself and Arturo Lupoli, two very good players who were scoring lots of goals. But you talk in the book about how, you know, your your drive, your your um, ambition was to outscore him and to to make it clear that you were the you were the the number one guy, if you like. So you know that starts from a, a really early point in your time at the club. Yeah, because I, I started coming to the club and, and I trained a little bit with the first team, but I wasn't playing games with the first team. And then uh, Arturo came in and uh, he was a very, very sweet guy and we had a good relationship. But both of us knew that there wasn't uh, space for both of us. Um, so obviously it became a really close competition. And of course I wanted to outscore him and I wanted to be the best in order for for being that guy that secured that spot in the first team. Hmm. As you make the the sort of progression at the club towards the first team, you know, you have a personality, you you talk about a, a fight with Thierry Henry and people tell you to leave it alone and you you know, you say in the book, I know that's good advice, but you can't do anything about your inbuilt personality, I guess. Was that a help or a hindrance, do you think, at times? Or, or does it have positives and negatives? I think you hit it spot on with positives and negatives um, because it's, it helped me through a lot. But it also... Uh, not helped me through a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, I can't really remember the, the right way to say it. It's been quite a while since I've been speaking English. Um, but um, I think that particular moment you're talking about obviously was was a big help uh, it was important to sort of understand the hierarchy and how things worked but sometimes from the way you are you know just becomes too much mm. um, you, you react in certain ways and that was what happened with me but luckily I, I, I learned from it and uh, and it was a 
a valuable experience I wouldn't have gotten if I wouldn't have uh, shouted. <laughs> sure. And is, I mean, is that something that you can take into your career, you know, when you become an older player and you see younger players in the same position that you're in? Is that something you ever had to deal with? Since I've become older in my career, I've tried to help the young players as much as I can. Um, it's always been something that I've been quite happy with doing in certain terms of uh, what you see in in. in in their game or mm. in, in their life in general. And um, I'm, I'm quite uh, uh, intrigued about that that sort of aspect. Uh, as, as I know, it's very, very difficult from being a young kid growing into a young man and then becoming a man. Tell me a bit about Arsene Wenger and, and what sort of an influence he had on you as a, as a footballer. And I know that there are people, you know, from the time you arrived, you, you tell a story of how Liam Brady told you you're going back to Denmark and, you know, it worked out. There have been people who have tried to influence you and guide your career in, in certain ways. Obviously, you're quite headstrong and you do things your own way in many respects. But what was Wenger like as that kind of a, a figure in your life as Obviously, the manager with a lot of power at Arsenal, but as you know, as somebody who I suppose wants to manage the career of footballers, young footballers, you know, and you you were in this team, which was quite a young team as well um, during the period you were making your breakthrough. Wenger, first of all, was obviously very, very great coach, very respectable, and what he did at the club was was amazing uh, for me. As a player as well, uh, the talks we had was inspirational and he, he showed at, at the beginning of my career a lot of uh, time. Uh, as we sort of progressed, there were things that uh, I could get disappointed in not playing, him not picking me, that Christian, Crystal Palace uh, thing that happened there too. Mm-hmm. Um but, but I mean, in general, he he he's a guy who just has you know the the club as his first priority, which he should. And uh, and he would, I mean he would do anything for the club. He he would never uh, jeopardize that. So his focus couldn't just be on me. You know, it had to be on the full picture. Sure. So I, I for me personally, I probably needed more uh, than 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 what only he could give me. I needed it more from other people as well. You say a bit later in the book that you felt that you weren't allowed to develop at Arsenal. I think that was the phrase that was used. Was that because of the competition for places or because of how you felt you were used by Arsene Wenger? There was a period, of course, when you played out on the right, you know, which, as you say yourself, isn't really your your natural position. Do you feel like you had fair chances um, I think it comes down to what you are saying there. I think at, at times when the other guys were scoring and doing well, I understood and respected my place on the bench and 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 had that sort of role of coming on and helping the team in that way. Mm. As you start developing and doing better, and and you're being part of something for 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 some time, like part of the team, and then you have to go and sit on the bench again. Obviously, that affects you because you think when when is it going to be your time? And I think that defining moment for me is that when I played the whole of the Carling Cup uh, up until the final mm. and, uh, and got dropped for the final, I mean, that's 
huge disappointment because you like set yourself up to being part of that starting eleven, and uh, and and then to see you're not on on the sheet, obviously, is is quite tough to take. Mm. I think it would be any player. One of the things that runs through the book is your relationship with alcohol. From the start, you know, as a young man, I think we've all been there as young men, we all like a drink and what have you. I mean, how do you view the ambitions that you had as a footballer? And and I think you stated that you wanted to be one of the best strikers in the world or to be perceived as one of the best strikers in the world, and nobody can argue with that ambition. How do you marry the 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 ambition with the lifestyle, which, I mean, do you look back in it and think that was not the way to do it? You could look back now and say, of course, there's been incidents where you could have done done it differently. I think my life has been a lot like up and down, up and down. Mm. So with, with a great success would come a great failure. And at the time, I, I, I dealt with that failure in that old-fashioned manner way with the, with drinks. Mm. Um, particularly that moment when we when we ran out of the of the Champions League, you know, against the Manchester United. Mm. Uh, I think that completely terrible and, and something you can look back at now and, and say, what were you doing? And, and rightly so, got fined and, and, and so on for that. Um, so it hasn't been like alcohol has been a part of my life all the time. It's just been a way of dealing with the, with the downs. Is it perhaps something that as football fans, we think of footballers as super professional, they live a really clean, healthy lifestyle. And, you know, there have been times when, uh, as you say in the book, your lifestyle has not been clean and healthy. Is it more prevalent in football than than we might think as fans? Not just in your case, I mean, in, in general. In general. Um, I think that... It's easy to to put what do you say those with the horse, you know, blinkers, uh, blinkers. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to put blinkers on and believe that because you're in a sporting world that everything should be like this and is like that. There's a lot more to it. Uh, there's a lot more pressure. There's so many things that you you suffer from. Not just you know smiling on the pitch. There's there's so many different personalities. So many different backgrounds people come coming from different places so everyone has something to deal with and 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 you know then the personality types comes into it too i mean i was a curious person on life has always been you know one of my dream things is to to travel the world to experience new things mm. and i think as a as a young player you need more help to to try to get guided through it and then as you obviously get more and more experienced, you, you sort of know how to, to manage it more and more yourself. There have been people in your life throughout your career who've tried to guide you in certain directions and to sort of temper some of the the off-the-pitch issues that you might have had, and Arsene Wenger is one of them. You talk in the book about Steve Bruce as well, who was your manager at, uh, at Birmingham City when you were on loan there and also at Sunderland. But often you you do things that you you know aren't really the right thing to do. You know that, but you go and do them anyway. What is that like? I mean, is there a voice in your head that you you can kind of shut out in a way? The one that's telling you this is not the right thing to do, but ends up being ignored? Um, 
I think that we each come from uh, a, a love and a joy of football. Mm. I mean, that that's our main goal and our main target. But it, but it brings me a little bit back to what I said before. You know, we all deal with, with failures and pressure uh, in, in many different ways. And as you can read in the book too, I mean, my life hasn't been, been the easiest one. And I haven't really had anyone to sort of being like really, really close to me to try and help me or, you know, calm me down or talk to me and understand the situation I've been in. Uh, people have just been taking, you know, and... and mm you sort of became this uh, uh, guy that just, where people just want something from you all the time. And it's, it's hard obviously to have a manager uh, and, and depend that he can, can give you what you need and, and give that to 25 to 25 players. Um, I mean, that's, that's just the way, the way it is. The lifestyle, you know, obviously is something uh, maybe we didn't see quite as much of it here, but back home in Denmark, you know, high-profile relationships and, and things like that. At a, a pretty young age, you know, 21, 22 years of age, you know, is that something you expected from a, a career in football? Um, I, I think if you're in the limelight for what you do on the pitch, that's probably something that's relatively easy to deal with or compartmentalize as a, as a footballer. But when it gets into the sort of the tabloid type stuff and the, the, the gossip columns and those kind of things. Was that a difficult thing to deal with at that age? Still, you know, pretty young in the grand scheme of things and at a, a fairly formative time in your career. Well, you, you want to be, to be well known for, for, for all the, the stuff on the pitch. That's for sure. Uh, you want the papers to write good things about you and, and rightly so when you do bad, they, they, they have the authority to write that you've been terrible in a game too. Sure. <laughs> That's completely, yeah, can, yeah. Can, can, can argue with that. Um, but obviously, that, that sort of uh, personality I had sometimes spilled out also uh, outside, the, outside of the pitch and, and the people that I saw and, and, and the things that I did, that became quite interesting to the media too. Um, it was not something I wanted. It was not something that I, I looked back at or sat at home and saw the paper and think like, oh, I'm happy this art- article came out. Not at all. Mm. Um, I would have loved to just be known for what happened on the pitch and, and, and nothing else. You seem sort of most at home in the, the Danish national team. Would that be fair to say that, you know, the troubles that you've had at, uh, you know, various clubs and establishing yourself or, or producing consistently for, for clubs don't seem to be there? Obviously, there were some ups and downs along the way with the Danish national team. But from a footballing perspective, in the book, it sounds like you were at your happiest there. I think that's fair to say, yes. <laughs> I can't sure. really say that much more. <laughs> but you had you had like a coach at the national team that uh, when you were together you were together for two weeks every single day staying at the same hotel and he was very good at like uh, like uh, focusing on you and giving yeah. you the attention you needed and also yelling at you if you uh, didn't uh, he, he, stayed all to the rules but I mean he could give you the attention that that Maybe you are sort of... Yeah, I was looking, looking for... Uh, yeah. he, he, um, the national team coach we had, Maud Nolsen, mm. was, uh, was a character who cared about his players. 
and and you could feel that all the way into your bones. Mm. Um, even when I did something he really disagreed with because he's a guy who was really, really strict, you know, as a player and as a manager. Yeah. Uh, it was very hard not to love and respect him, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on a, on a, let's say I had done something that I shouldn't, he would, he would pick up the phone and he would talk to me about what was going on in my life, why this stuff had, stuff had happened, uh, where I was at mentally and stuff like that. So he, he showed me, he showed me something that wanted me to just give him all I could do. The honesty in the book is quite interesting. And I'm just sort of curious as to, there was one thing that stood out for me. Like you, you're, you're upfront about a lot of things. There's a moment in the book where you talk about your relationship with uh, Emmanuel Adebayor. And when you had a little incident on the pitch, I think he gave you a headbutt, wasn't it? You sort of push headbutted me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I was because there's another bit where you're you're talking about Dennis Ramadal in the national team, and he doesn't square the ball to you, but he scores, and you kind of say, oh, "I like that about him." You know, he told you to fuck off or whatever it was, and you go, "I like that about him." <laughs> but yeah, I all the attention. So. Yeah, exactly. But I remember a game. Uh, was it against Birmingham City? I think it was the game in which uh, Eduardo had his leg broken, and there was a moment where Adi Bayor could have passed to you for a goal. Your relationship with him seems to have been quite difficult or tricky, and I guess there's competitive rivalry because you're two strikers and you're both wanting to play. But in the book, you say you know you you were shouting and screaming at each other, and that's it. You're not going to say anymore. It's sort of at odds with the honesty that's there in the book. Why did you keep that kind of secret? Is that the sanctity of the dressing room or what was that about? It's not like there's any secret there. It's just what happened. Mm. Uh, We obviously had a falling out because we were getting hammered by Tottenham at the time and and we performed really purely. He came on the pitch and and we had a big argument about uh, me not passing him in uh, I think through on, mm. on a long ball or something like that, and then it just uh, sort of exploded on that corner kick, um, and we got separated. And then we had a a beef in 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 the dressing room, not not with the, anything violent or anything like that. But then we got separated, um, and and the next day we were called into the office and um, explained about how we should live with each other knowing we didn't like each other in, in, in the greater respect of the club again uh, Wenger giving out some wisdom mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it's the first time you've seen players not get on but in the greater good of the team and, and the respect of the club uh, don't you know don't talk to each other but if the ball is there to be squared so to use your weight then you square it you know mm. um, so I think it's fair to say we're never going to be best friends <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 we're never gonna like each other. But you, you might be uh, you might be uh, asking what exactly was said that Nicholas doesn't want to mention. Yeah, I mean, right? from your po- from your perspective, were there things you know? Obviously, you can you can address issues, and there there are specifics. You can go to various levels of specifics when you're talking about an incident. Were there things, for for example, Runa, that you might have said to him? Well, let's talk about this, but let's not go into a great deal of detail. Yeah, and no, I think 
as I remember it, why Nicholas didn't want to go into detail but with what exactly was said of swearing words in this uh, concrete uh, episode was pretty much that uh, Adeboyo wouldn't wouldn't have really the chance to to answer answer back, and so it's just to be to as fair as possible, uh, just give give behind the scenes of uh, on why it, the 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 confrontation even was was on the pitch. Yeah, yeah. We're talking on transfer deadline day, and you have a story from a particular transfer deadline day in your book in which you were waiting all day for a move to Crystal Palace to go through, waiting around, and then at the last minute you got a phone call from Arsene Wenger telling you that the deal couldn't go through because Arsenal couldn't bring in a striker and you were required to be back up. Um, how frustrating is it on a day like that when you're sitting around and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're expecting something to happen and then the opposite happens? It's obviously pretty hard to take given the reaction that you had to Arsene Wenger when that news came through. It's the frustration was enormous. Uh, it, it was a very difficult moment for me because it also could have been a defining moment had I gone to Crystal Palace. It could have developed my career in a completely different way. So obviously it was very, very tough to take, and I think that's why we had that heated argument. Obviously, um, but it's hard to it's hard to hate a guy who thinks about the greater good of a club that you love. Do you, do you know where I'm coming from? Yeah. So obviously he couldn't sell me because then he didn't have any backup striker. Mm. But also it, it it ruined a lot for me. Um, so the next day I, I, I knocked on his door and, and just explained, listen, you know how it feels, but there's nothing actually I can do about it now. Um, so can we just like trot on and like trying to sort of get out of here mm. uh, and, 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 and focus on, on, on what we have to do. So we agreed on that and then we moved, moved on. But yeah, I was very, very disappointed and, uh, and, and I waited many days in a hotel to sort of sort out that, uh, that deal. What's it like to, to be at a club knowing that, you know, you're only there as backup and I suppose it's part and parcel of a, the job of a footballer, right? We, we saw it, for example, with, with Arsenal when Bernd Leno got injured, Emi Martinez, who's been the number two, number three, number two, lots of loan deals, all of a sudden has this chance. I mean, do you have to behave in a way which means you're absolutely ready to take that chance if there are one or two injuries and you're needed in the team? How, how difficult is it to maintain the motivation? There's two key factors in this. When when I broke first through at the, at the first team, I knew there was a chance I could become uh, the main man or, or the top striker. I had the the qualities, and and I just needed to like get down. So my focus was always on breaking through uh, at that point and and sort of becoming the main guy. Uh, at that particular moment, when you know that if they find a backup and you then you can get sold. And if they don't, you sort of have to go back. You sort of know your role mm. and you know uh, a little bit on, on borrowed time. Um, that didn't change my, my state uh, that I was still obviously an Arsenal player. I still felt how I felt for the club. So it couldn't really change my focus. Mm. Um, so I still, still went about it uh, on a professional uh, level, knowing that, I wasn't going to be here after this season. 
there was a point, wasn't there, where where you came to an arrangement that you would train, but you weren't going to be included in matches. That must be difficult. It was very difficult. It was very difficult, and 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 the goodbye I had with the club was nothing that I had ever expected uh, would would just go like like it did. Um, I scored that winning goal at the Emirates, and in 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 doing that, I got injured with my ankle. Mm. So that sort of stopped uh, also the winter move, which was also quite critical because I was injured for two months. Um, so really, really bad timing. And then after that, uh, I got the news that I could train with the team, uh, but but I could be off on weekends. So my focus sort of just been like, take it as it is, try to inspire the guys with some good mood. Don't try to let yourself influence the team in a negative way uh, for the last six months. How much of a part do you think injuries played in the in maybe your career not going in the way that you, you might have wanted it? And how serious was the, the car crash um, that happened on the way to training that day, the long-term effects of that? The car crash was, if you can say, my biggest regret ever. Uh, it probably was that. It, it's obviously out of my hands, but it just affected me so much. Mm. Uh, I Since that time, I had pain everywhere I was more or less living on uh, anti-inflammatory um, and and sort of jocking myself uh, to like trying to get through and from that a lot of other injuries spring, sprung off um, so that was a real real tough uh, thing to sort of get to terms with and accept yeah um, so for, for sure that was a very career-defining moment injury-wise. Um, and, and, yeah, difficult. Okay. Can you, um, just a couple more before we, we let you go, and I really appreciate your time. Can you tell me a bit about Mikel Arteta, um, who's a former teammate of yours and is now uh, manager at Arsenal? As a player, was he somebody who you might have seen as a coach at a future point in his career? Let me put it this way. There was no doubt that he was going to coach at one stage. Okay. <laughs> no doubt at all. He, 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 he had all the qualities already as a player. Um, his determination, his willingness to learn, his, his, his way of accepting uh, and, and always looking to improve. Mm. Um, I, I knew he, he, he was going to manage. And um, I think he, he can do very well at Arsenal. Um, he, he definitely has what it takes and um, I'm sure we will see him in many, many years and I hope he he will get uh, great success with the club. I mean, that would be phenomenal for all of us. Um, so, yeah, o- only praise on a managing level uh, from, from playing with him and, and, and so far from what I've seen. Do you think you could have played with Mikel Arteta as a coach? Is he the kind of coach who could have given you that guidance perhaps? Um, obviously, I, it's difficult to take him as a player and mm. as a coach now because it might have been two different people because mm. um, you've seen many players who you thought would uh, who would go in and be a coach and you knew they would. They, can, uh, uh, they have a different responsibility, different uh, pressure. Yeah. Um, but um, I would have liked to play under him for sure. Um, he was a guy I respected hugely uh, 
as a, as a general in, in the midfield when we play together. What does what does Arsenal mean to you as a football club? Because you've been at Juventus, you've been at a, a lot of football clubs, but I think your best uh, association is obviously w- with Arsenal and the years that you spent there, particularly you know as a, a young guy coming through. So, when you look back, what are your feelings towards the club and the fans and your your time uh, in North London? I feel a lot of love, first of all, from from the whole club in, in general and, and the fact that I've been able to play at, at Highbury and been able to play at Emirates and to be part of, of the whole Arsenal setup has been something unspeakable, mm. um, truly tremendous. And, and the fact that I came from the youth and sort of made it into the first team is something that makes me proud. Um, that the fans gave me a song every time they, they sang it was was an absolutely amazing feeling and uh, and the time we had together has given me a lot uh, as a player and as a person um, so I mean I was an Arsenal fan even before I got there so mm. yeah I think that just said, says it all What's your the favourite goal that you scored for the club? Uh, well I would say it was, it's my first Premier League goal against Tottenham mm. Um and that's also because of the feeling it gave that you scored your first Premier League goal. Uh, it was against Tottenham. Uh, it, it was sort of like a, a stamp of of, of you uh, checking in to, to the first team. Mm. It was a brilliant header because you just came on as a sub and thumped it home. It was uh, an amazing goal. Yeah, I, I was quite pleased with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you came on and did what the manager told you to do, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, to make a difference, and 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 it, and it worked out. Yeah, in the the process of doing this book with Runa, you've obviously had time to to think about all the things that you've done in your life, in your career, on the pitch and off the pitch. How do you how do you view it now? I mean, do you have regrets? Would you go back and do things differently, or does? the life experience and the way that you did things just make you who you are now and that's that's okay or would you maybe tweak a few things along the way? As you say, obviously when you become older, I'm 32 now, you reflect in a different way. There's, there's definitely things that could have been going differently. Um, to say you have regrets, it's difficult to say, but to say I would have liked to have done more that's something I definitely would have done uh, if I could. But I'm also a very curious guy. I'm a curious guy on, on life itself. Um, and, and the life I've been living, is it's shown me so much uh, on so many levels. I've experienced so much. Um, so regrets, I would have liked to driven it more. Uh, but um, it is what it is now. And, and I look back now and on the way that I've lived and, and the things that I've experienced um, with, uh, with more consideration and more, more thought. Mm. Uh, not not in, in, in a regretting way in, in that sense, but more it's been a learning curve. And, and, and I think I'm, I'm actually quite proud of, of what I've done. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. if I could... Uh... Uh, say something here. Sure. Say that as, as a biographer, as a writer, and uh, uh, as a reader as well, uh, I'm happy that Nicholas didn't uh, 
uh, just stay true to discipline and nothing else because that would not have been the same book to to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, to 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 read a, a football book can sometimes be almost a like a parody. I think mm. because it's such a, a picture perfect and uh, it became very boring. Uh, I think uh, learning about Nicholas' life has been everything else but boring for me and education as well. Well, it's definitely not boring. I can tell you that when you're reading it, there's a lot going on <laughs> and a lot has gone on in your life. Just finally, I mean, um, do you think about what the future holds now? Um, I have quite a clear uh, view on, on, on what path I want to take. Um, does it involve football? Uh, it most definitely does. Um, I've just uh, signed on, uh, speaking about managing courses, uh, on my own managing course here starting in December. Um, so that's definitely a route I could see myself go down. I think when you have lived your whole life in football and it's all you know and, and it's what you love, it makes sense to stay in it. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I being part of the game on, on a managing level could be very, very exciting. Okay, well, it's a tough competitive world out there, but uh, I wish you the very best of luck. And uh, look, it was great to talk to you. I hope the book goes really well. Um, And thank you very much indeed, both of you, Nicholas and Runa. Thank you for your time. Thank Thank you very much. Substitution from Arsene Wenger. A first Premier League goal for Nicholas Bentner. It's 2-1 to the Gunners. Well, thank you very much to Nicholas Bentner and to Runa Shkayam Nielsen, who wrote the book, Both Sides, Nicholas Bentner's autobiography. It is out now, published by Octopus Books. You can get it as ever from your local independent bookstore. Drop in, give them a call, send them an email, and they will make sure that that book is there for you. Uh, I believe as well in the UK, WH Smith have some signed copies. We've got a link in the show notes if you want to buy one of the signed copies to that. We have a copy to give away as a competition prize as well. Thank you again to Octopus Books. The question, well, you heard Nicholas Bentner's debut Premier League goal just there, a header, a thumping header against Spurs at the Emirates Stadium. Uh, It came just seconds after he'd been brought on as a substitute by Arsene Wenger. Tell me, though... Who took the corner from which Nicholas Bentner scored his first ever Arsenal goal? Who took the corner? Simple. Just send your answer, please, to competition at arsblog.com. That's competition at arsblog.com. And uh, we'll give you the winner on next week's show. Not a lot else to do. There's no football this weekend, obviously, because of the interlull. Many of our players are away. We do have situations ongoing with uh, COVID-19, Kieran Tierney and everything else. So let's hope he and... And everyone else remain safe and sound and healthy. Likewise to all of you guys out there, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, please stay safe and healthy. Do all the stuff that you need to do to ensure that that happens for you and for everybody else. James and I will be here on Monday. We'll have an Arscast Extra for you then. So in the meantime, it just remains for me to say thank you as ever for listening. Have yourselves a great weekend. We'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
Hello, I would like to make a complaint, please. I've just finished listening to your latest episode of this so-called cast, in which you posit we should sing a song as Arsenal fans to celebrate the on-field exploits of our new signing, Thomas Partey, with the lyrics, My girl likes to party all the time. Well, I feel excluded by this as my girl... Only parties when indeed it is sensible to do so. Sometimes you might feel like partying, but you can't. You might have to go to work or pick the children up from school or get that boil lanced at last. So, while there may indeed be girls who like to party all the time, those girls who like to party only occasionally, or indeed on an ad hoc basis, plus their significant others, are going to feel left out. The last thing I think we need within the Arsenal fan base right now is even more division. So, if you wouldn't mind, please go back and re-record this entire episode and think of a much better song for the chant for Thomas Partey. Okay, I don't actually have a girl. It's just I'm a massive Beastie Boys fan and I wanted that song. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.